What's good? Thank you so much for tuning in to this special bonus episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 31-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I read them as an adult because I was on a quest to determine if this is a book series that society's been sleeping on. I can say with confidence society has been sleeping on it, and now the Percy Jackson TV show is coming out in the near future, and hopefully that will help society not be sleeping on the series. But the reason I'm doing this little update bonus episode is because I had the pleasure of going to New York Comic Con a while back, and I also had the pleasure of interviewing some of the people on the production team behind the show. And I may or may not have a situation where I'm getting to talk to some of the folks from that production team again, and I will be posting things about those interviews in the future. So in the meantime, I wanted to get the stuff that I already had completed out there so that you can understand where I was coming from in the past, what I learned at Comic-Con, and then in the future, what I learned in new interviews. So just wanted to do a little thing here in between episodes just to uh, hello, here's the fun stuff that went down at Comic-Con now that it's getting kind of older and new opportunities are here. So let's get right into the whole thing and we'll start at the big panel that they had. So there was a big panel that I got to get nice seats for because I apparently am a member of the press, which is ridiculous, but we're going to roll with it because it's allowing me to do cool things. So yes, hello, it's me, very reputable journalist, Mike Schubert. Now, the folks that were on this panel were John Steinberg, who is the executive producer and co-creator of the show, Dan Schatz, who is an executive producer, James Bobbin, who is the director of the first two episodes and an executive producer, Dan Henna, who's the production designer, Tish Monahan, who is the costume designer, Eric Henry, who is one of the VFX supervisors, and Jeff White, who is the other VFX supervisor. Specifically, he is with ILM, which is the volume, which is like the big screen that is a technological version, like doing stuff with green screen and blue screen, but you can actually like put stuff on there so you're not just filming on like a blank thing. You can already project stuff and then do more CGI on top of it. Super cool, super fascinating stuff. I had no idea that that existed before showing up. And then the other real journalists there were like, oh yeah, it's the thing from The Mandalorian. And I was like, the huh? So it was very nice for me to learn all about that. So those folks were on the panel. For context, this took place when the strikes were still going on. I believe the writer strike had been finished, but the actor strike was still going on. So they couldn't have actor folk. But it was really cool because with the production people, you got to learn a whole lot. So it was a moderated panel where they were asked questions and then they would show clips from the show throughout the panel. Now, I don't think that I am at liberty to talk about the clips, so I won't. And I will instead just kind of talk about some of their answers on the panel. And then I got to do little roundtable interviews and I can talk about those. So when they were on the panel, I just got to say overall, everyone gave really solid answers. Everyone was very good about not stepping on each other's toes, which was fantastic. And then there were just some really fun standout quotes that I jotted down and I would love to share those with you. One of the first questions that I thought just had a fantastic answer, they asked the production team team about the kid actors and what it was like to work with them. And people said various nice things about them. And then John Steinberg, one of the EPs and co-creators, after people had said nice things, he said something to the effect of, there are ways to easily dodge this question if we wanted to, but we don't need to. They're great, which was fantastic. <laughs> Such a good answer. Then later on, there were discussions about Camp Half-Blood and bringing that to life. And they showed some pictures that you can kind of see now in the trailer and the teaser that have been released since. And Dan Henna, the production designer, had a fun quote where he said, school camps are generally boring and then talked about really trying to bring it to life. And oh boy, they did. 
Later on, Tish Monahan, the costume designer, who is the coolest person on Earth, gave a phenomenal story about how they made the perfect Camp Half-Blood shirts. So they had first determined the ideal shade of orange that they wanted to go with, and then they tried to find existing shirts that came in that shade of orange. However, they were unable to find the perfect orange. So what they decided to do was they decided to make their own orange dye to make the exact color that they wanted. So then they were buying all these white shirts and dyeing them, but then they had to test things and wash them and make different versions because things will get dirty and all this kind of stuff. They eventually ran out of white shirts from their supplier, I believe. So then they had to start bringing in other colors that were still light. So like yellow and then turn that orange, but you have to dye it a different color to offset that it's not white. They originally had 20 shades of orange before they selected one and got into this whole dyeing process. Then Tish went on to talk about how the shirts were washed and treated differently depending on the cabin. So the Aries cabin campers have shirts that are more faded because in theory they need to wash their shirts more because since they're always doing athletic things, their shirts are getting dirty more often, so they need to wash them more often. And then the Hephaestus campers have ones that have like burn marks and stuff because they're in the forges and all. So like they even thought about how the different cabins are going to be wearing the shirts. This attention to detail is what has me so confident about the whole television program. Later on, the VFX guys were talking about using the volume and what it allowed them to do, both with exterior things and interior things. It allowed them to make Camp Half-Blood look more magical with the outside set. It allowed them to do things like make an interior set that believably looked like the Met. But he also said that when they were finished filming one section or something, they hooked up Mario Kart to the giant TV volume thing and all the kids were playing Mario Kart and apparently they destroyed the adults and Walker Scoble, who plays Percy Jackson, is very good at Mario Kart. Then the VFX guys were talking about some of the monsters. Eric Henry was very particularly excited about the Chimera. Jeff White mentioned that the Minotaur was one of the most interesting ones to develop, though, because you have it running on all fours at one point, and you want it to seem scarier, but you can't make it too scary because it's a kid's program. Then you want to have the Minotaur be able to rise up and have that scary moment when it raises up onto just two legs. And they had the fingers and toes of the Minotaur turn into hooves when running but then separate into fingers when attacking which is pretty cool walker at one point was on a mechanical bull in the rain and someone in a minotaur type costume was wearing like an on stilts and then they had a head it was like nine and a half feet in the air and the costuming for the minotaur did involve some physical tidy whities that did have a 102 inch waist and of course tish the costume designer put them on herself at one point. They talked more about the casting. They said that they really enjoyed having people who had comedic chops, which made sense because the books are comedic, so the show wants to be comedic. And they also said that they just felt that actors who can bring comedy to the table can do a whole lot and have a large range. And as someone that tries to be comedic and stuff, I loved hearing that. I felt very seen. I was like, yes, we can do anything if we put our minds to it. Dan Schatz, one of the EPs, said a cool fun fact that the actor who plays Chiron runs an inner city camp that works with horses. So him being the horse guy makes a whole lot of sense. He also, this actor, was a rodeo cowboy at one point in time. Really cool. Another fun fact about casting that was mentioned was that Lin-Manuel Miranda's kids are obsessed with the books. At one point, they were asked about bloopers. Dan Schatz, one of the EPs, said that there was a scene where Zeus, Poseidon, and Percy are 
all together in a scene and then Zeus leaves in a sudden flash. And in order to make that dramatic effect, they had an air cannon that they shot at Walker Scoble and Toby Stevens, who's playing Poseidon. And it's just supposed to like, you know, whoosh their hair back and stuff. But apparently the cannon was set a little too intensely. Toby kind of powered through it, but Walker just immediately fell to the ground and burst it out laughing. So maybe we'll see a, a gag reel at some point. We also learned that Edge, who is the WWE, one of the professional wrestling leagues, there's a guy who plays Aries as Edge from wrestling. I don't know enough about professional wrestling, but his kids also love the books, and apparently he is just the nicest guy ever. And something that I think was really sweet was John Steinberg, the co-creator and executive producer, Whenever he talked about working with Rick Riordan, he always said Rick and Becky, always together. And I thought that was really cool. And it seems like she really had an important role in the production of the show as well. And obviously, as someone newer to the fandom, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about Becky's involvement. But just the general vibe that I get from her involvement with the fandom is that she is beloved and she cares about the fandom and she is always trying to interact with the fandom. Like her Twitter account is always trying to interact with people because I think even her bio mentioned something like I can say things that Rick can and stuff like that. So for her to be involved in the production of the show, I think is really cool. And I like that John, every single time he talked about working with Rick, it was always Rick and Becky, which I thought was great. So that was my major takeaways from the big panel. Then we got to go into a breakout room and do little roundtable interviews, which involves me and other people who are real reputable journalists sitting at a table. And then they would bring in these people from the production team, usually in sets of two. They would sit at your table and then be there for a couple of minutes, basically so that each person at the table got to ask one question. So for the rest of this episode, I will intersplice the audio from me asking them questions and then them answering questions. So the first person I got to talk to was James Bobin, who directed the first two episodes and is one of the executive producers. It wasn't until after this interview that I learned that he did stuff with the Muppets. And I absolutely would have asked if you were doing Muppets Percy Jackson Who's going to be the one person in the movie that isn't a Muppet? Who are you going to cast? All the, oh, I would have asked so many questions about that. But alas, I didn't learn that till after. But here's what I asked James. So just from what we saw in the clips, yes. it seemed like, at least for the first episode, yep. which you directed, that there are more of the like not exactly in the book, some things like interstitial that Rick had mentioned. Is there added pressure for you to direct something that is not necessarily direct from the source material, or is it a fun challenge? Not really, because as John was saying, I think it's the idea that we are the book, but we're like the book now. (laughs) And because Rick's involved, he's very much with his blessing, which is the most important part of it. Obviously, my job was basically to do his work justice. So I felt that that didn't really matter. The stuff that we augmented or changed a bit is not huge, and generally it helps, and it's kind of how you want to see it now anyway. Um, So no, no difference really. It was a question of just choosing it all the same because to me it felt like the right thing to do. Next up was John Steinberg and Dan Schatz, the executive producers. With making a TV show where you have a a book that is written in first-person narration and then TV show, unless you have constant monologue, it's not going to be the same. (laughs) Is that, it's obviously a challenge, but like, how do you toe the line between when to use it, when not to use it, all that kind of stuff to make the show evoke things? It's it's a, it's a like great example. Really it's a great example of, of you know how these mediums are um, are just really different. And I think um, you know to try to match that and try to tell this story in Percy's head isn't taking advantage of the fact that I can show you things um, that 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 just don't work the same way in a book. So 
I think there was a commitment um, pretty early on to use it sparingly um, and to try to take advantage more of what this medium does well, which is to um, to create a, a visual ride um, that tells you all of the same, um, uh, goes to all the same emotional depths and with the same emotional complexity. Um, it just has to do it in a different language. The question is, is really smart because it's, it's not just, it's the first person, it's also the pacing. It, there, you know, you're in camp for how many hundreds of pages where the ride doesn't start really until the quest doesn't start until yeah. after camp. So how do you fit all of that into into this eight episode box? Um, so it's it's looking at every aspect of it. Um, and like I said on the panel, that we were able to we were able to have a really long period of time where it was just Rick, Becky, John, and myself like to work on this, um, where we didn't have a lot of the outside pressures because it was during COVID. Like we got to just spend the time, mine it, talk about it. What what themes are here? What themes are underneath it all? Um, how do we pull those out? And so it was, I, I think that time when we look back on it made a huge difference um, to not feel that that pressure of a clock of, hey, we got to get this on the air. Let's go, let's go. And let's just tell the best story. And as they were getting up from the table, I just, I mean, I don't really know what I'm doing at this point. You know, I'm just trying to be nice. I'm trying to ask fun, goofy questions that stand out a little bit. But when they were leaving, they were just so nice that I just congratulated them on the show being really well done. Congrats as well. It looked awesome. Thank you very much. (laughs) Next up was Dan Henna and Tish Monahan. Dan, the production designer, and Tish, the costume designer. First, I asked Tish a question that was not truly costumey. Tish, you had mentioned all of the work that went into getting the perfect shirt with the dyes and all of the different stuff there. Obviously, the Camp Half-Blood shirts are iconic, but another thing that I know people were so excited when the promo images came out was the Camp Half-Blood necklaces with the beads. Was that another thing that had, like, you tried out bunches of wood? That was actually the props department. Okay. (laughs) Now, you didn't... I didn't have anything to do with it. Props, because it's something that had to be handled. Okay. Um, But it was uh, with the direct approval of our director, James. Okay. So it was those two departments were hand in hand. It was going to be a key thing because they were in every virtually every single scene. So, And then I was able to ask her a question that was costumey because there was extra time at the end. Since I didn't actually ask one about costume yeah. for you, when you're designing the, the costumes like for the other kids, when you're looking at things that are more individual, like Percy's van sneakers or Clarice's boots, like how much of that is character? How much of that is trying to match the personality of the actor? What goes into the thought process of the other artists? I would say, I would say since you're working with teenagers, you're not so much worried about the personality of the actor. Okay. You're worried about what's true to the character. And, and generally, our younger actors are... Um, the, they'll take that that costume if you think that it's this then they'll they'll go with that you you won't you know hit too many um, you know too much resistance to it but um, definitely I mean that's the way it, you just want to find the truth of those characters it's there's nothing in doing costumes that's me trying to put a stamp on anything it's reading the story analyzing the dialogue, discussing with the director and or the you know producers and finding out what do we want to say about this kid against the universe. So that is what dictates the, co- the, the choice of what I end up giving them. And you know you have to have some adaptability because when the actor does come, 
you know, you had to choose what's right for him as well. I unfortunately did not have any time to ask Dan anything, but also a super nice dude. And his outfit was fantastic. He had a cool scarf. He had a cool shirt. He had a cool jacket. His hair was fantastic. Oh, what a man. And finally, I got to speak with Eric Henry and Jeff White, the two VFX supervisors. And I am so delighted at the answer to the question that I got. It is the coolest thing that I've heard. And I ju just check it out. It's so good. With VFX, obviously, there's the big monsters and all the other things you're creating. Are there any VFX things that are a little more smaller or minute that you are really proud of, whether it's like, oh, we have to make Vancouver look like New York City or any like tiny things that people might miss that you were either proud of or was a challenge? That's such a good one for this. And then, uh, so there's a sequence where they, um, uh, Annabeth uses a crystal so that they can communicate with Luke. And it was like, what should this look like? You know, trying to design it. And the um, artist who did it uh, took, uh, a camera set it up, took like Listerine bottles and put his iPhone light through the Listerine bottles and it flared into this lens in this way that's like beautiful and organic. And we showed it to Eric and he's like, that's great. That's, it. <laughs> that's great. And there was no like effects sim or anything. It was just all like hand, hand constructed. Uh, yeah, we did. We do like as much as we do a lot of computer graphics and big pipeline and all that, like we love to just go shoot little elements and, and make things happen that way. So that was my experience at New York Comic Con. It was really fun, and I am having a fun time being a, a press person. It's wild, it's bizarre, and I'm still confused about it, but I'm along for the ride, and I'm having a good time, and I'm excited to post some more bonus-type episodes. I don't want to say too much because I don't want to violate any of the embargoes that are put on me as a member of the press, but I will just say stay tuned on the TNO feed for more bonus episodes to be posted that aren't necessarily with our strict posting schedule. So just make sure you're subscribed, and if your podcasting app lets you have notifications if you want that, I'm going to be posting some stuff because I might have some opportunities, and there's some things that are maybes and some things that are confirmed, but basically I'm going to try to get as much behind the scenes information as I can. And I'm going to share as much of that as possible with all of you on the podcast. So stay tuned. I'm excited. Thank you so much for listening, especially if this was your first time listening. I don't know if you found this from someone posting quotes from it or anything like that, but thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And until we meet again, which will be this coming Monday for the myth episode about the book five myths with Dr. Moyle McTeer. Until then, I'll pursue you later. This episode of The New Olympian is brought to you by Thrive Market. Now, at Camp Half-Blood, they are cooking up a whole bunch of fun stuff at the cafeteria, but we never really hear about where they supply all of the things for the cafeteria. I'm not sure where they get their stuff, but you know where they should get their stuff? Thrive Market. Thrive can be your go-to for all of your grocery and household essentials, and it has been my go-to. I've got a bunch of stuff from Thrive now, and I genuinely enjoy all of it. I've got Thrive trash bags, dishwashing detergent, snacks, rice, beans, 
things that wash my dishes, like scrub brushes and stuff. They have a lot of really great deals. I've been capitalizing on those deals and I have truly been enjoying using Thrive Market. I love a lot of things about Thrive. I love that they only allow trusted top quality ingredients while restricting harmful ingredients like artificial flavors, high fructose corn syrup, and more. And whether you are looking for organic kid snacks, high protein essentials, whatever it is, you can curate your own shopping experience with a few clicks. They've got all these different filters and stuff like that, different categories. I utilize those when I was looking for particular items, and it was really easy to navigate the site. I always have a simple time finding what I'm looking for. And it's not just saving time. I'm saving money as a Thrive Market member. I'm looking at my stats right now. My average savings per order are $34.98. On my last order, I saved almost $50, and I got a whole bunch of things for my pantry. I got hand soap refills. I got chicken broth. I got rice. I got beans. I got kitchen towels. It was great. Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash TNO for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash TNO, thrivemarket.com slash TNO, so you can be as well-stocked as the Camp Half-Blood cafeterias are today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode of The New Olympian is brought to you by Straight River Coffee. If you've been listening to The New Olympian and you're thinking, my goodness, I would love to pair this podcast with a nice warm cup of joe, but not just any nice warm cup of joe, but specifically TNO branded coffee. Well, you are in luck because TNO coffee exists. That's right. We have partnered with Straight River Coffee, which is a small independent business that is made up of folks who listen to The New Olympian and we have teamed up to make TNO coffee. So there is a specific roast from Straight River for coffee called Anacluz Roast. I came up with the name. I think it's very good. And you can get a one pound bag of coffee from them if you go to the newsolympian.com slash merch. I'm not a coffee drinker, but multiple people have told me that the coffee tastes very good and smells incredible. And here's the description of the coffee from Straight River. Sourced from the finest fair trade beans, our collaborative blend boasts flavor notes of nutty caramel and rich chocolate, ensuring each sip transports you to a realm of excitement and wonder. It's cool. The bags were also made by an environmentally friendly bag company and the art design on the bags, which yes, is a pigeon drinking a cup of coffee. Those were made by another independent artist, Ava Hess, who does some incredible artwork as well. So it's a bunch of small businesses and independent creators teaming up to make this coffee happen. And it's really cool. And it also ships free internationally. So it doesn't matter if you live in the US or not the US. The price listed is the price. No extra shipping fees. It's super cool. And you can get a pound of this wonderful coffee delivered to you or multiple, I think. You can probably get more than one bag. I don't know. But go to thenewsolympian.com slash merch, scroll down, click the link about the coffee, and then boom, you can get some Anacluz roast in your cup today. And then you can perfectly pair TNO coffee with your TNO podcast.